You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Well, hello everyone listening live and by podcast. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. Everyone's a little restless in Victoria due to the COVID lockdown, but some broke out with anti-restriction demonstrations to coincide with ScoMo's demands for the states to relax the borders so the economy can get on with business. Funny how the JobKeeper system has been able to be used by some companies to pay shareholder dividends while staff have been fired, despite what appeared to be large sums of money going to companies like Qantas, Qantas sacking 6000 after a big whack from the federal government without any equity share required, and now another 2,500 workers in baggage handling and cleaning to be cut and the work to be outsourced to a company that has a reputation of underpaying and conditions slashing. So why did public money go to Qantas? That's what the TWU are asking. The ideas coming from Morrison and his cohort is leadership will solve everything. Leadership and business and a whole lot of terms picked up from warfare applied to national natural disasters. One of the most fascinating things that happened this week was Channel 9 expose of factional fighting and branch stacking in Victorian Liberals with tentacles going into the federal sphere with a tinge of right-wing religiosity about it. Not the first time this group has been sprung, but it is more that the faction that includes Peter Costello and Michael Kroger have obviously been using the jousting lance to pierce the pimple once more. Very interesting. Nothing to see here, according to Scase's Channel 7, and I suppose that means that uh, uh, Scase is embroiled in the other faction, uh, but anyway, who knows? But I should leave the cogitations to Kevin, who is back with another This Is The Week That Was later in the show. If you've been listening to Kevin, you should be aware that he has an AMP scalp under his belt with the changes at the AMP helm announced this week. The sexual harassment claims left shit on the shoe of one of the people forced to return to his earlier lower position. Apparently, there has been calls for investors for more women on the board. What will they think of next? Anyway, getting down to business, today we start with a look at food security. It's a bit frightening to hear people talking about the possibility of famines because of the pandemic. The LEAP, which is a Canadian organisation, is working on a project it calls the People's Bailout, an approach that challenges corporate control of people's lives and survival. 
they have food supply in their sites at their most recent webinar. Over the Wall is back, looking at robo-debt and disability. We follow this with a word from the East Gippsland Dispatches and finish with a few informed opinions about Australia's China relations. Hi, my name's Kath. 3CR's been in my life for decades. Each week I listen to my favourite programs. However, it's in a time of crisis that I really appreciate how important 3CR is. Often, this is when thousands of people are on the streets pushing for change. In this time of COVID, no one is on the streets. 3CR is more important than ever, keeping all our communities connected and informed. 3CR is a remedy for social isolation in this time of physical distancing. Good on you, 3CR. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover, I could hold my hand back. Really loud, really loud. Thank you. The Leap recently ran a session called The People's Bailout for Food. Since the pandemic, food bank use in Canada has increased 70%, especially among black, indigenous and racialized communities. At the same time, migrant farm workers are getting sick and dying, denied the protections they need and the rights they deserve. Now, in Australia, the same kinds of attitudes towards employment, workers' rights and quality of life versus corporate and business control with the workers paying for the pandemic is centre stage. So I thought it might be interesting to hear from people talking about food insecurity and what they call reimagining of our society based on values of care and repair while governments are turning on the spending taps. Food organisation, and I think going back quite a while, you know, I think in the movement, uh, the food movement, so to speak, um, people acknowledge that 4.4 million Canadians are food insecure, you know, but what we realize is when we report out on the statistics around food insecurity in this country, they don't necessarily speak to or they don't speak to the experiences of folks that are especially vulnerable. So for FoodShare, we wanted to dive in, uh, take a deeper dive and actually look at what the experience for black folks was in this country. And it, and it, it was eye opening in so many ways, you know, initially we found you know, black Canadians are three and a half times more likely to be food insecure than, than white Canadians. We found that 12% of um, white children live in food insecure households versus 36% of black children. You know, those are startling enough, but what we found after that really spoke to how this is an issue. And first of all, I should say, when we're talking about 4.4 million folks in, in, who are living in food insecure households, that's equal to the cities of populations of Calgary and Toronto combined. So this was a crisis uh, already, especially so for Black Canadians. Here are some of the things that we learned. And first, you know, when we saw those numbers, we tried to tease anything out possible to try and understand what was happening, what was causing this. We looked at household composition and found that it didn't matter if it was a single parent household, dual parent household, prevalence remained high. We looked at things like immigration status. It didn't matter if someone was born in, a Black person was born in Canada or born abroad. Again, the prevalence remained high. We also looked at things like um, home ownership, which you referenced. And I think we generally understood in this country that when someone owns a home, they're less likely to be food insecure. 
not true for black Canadians. So actually black uh, homeowners in this country are pretty much um, uh, just as food insecure, same levels of food insecurity as white renters in this country. So really, you know, and I could go on with some of these stats, I won't do that, but really what this underpins for me is that folks in the food movement or, or, or doing work around food advocacy who have long positioned some, uh, especially white-led or large white-led organizations who have been unwilling to engage in conversations about systemic racism, around anti-Black racism, anti-indigeneity. Those are the things that need to be centered in this work moving forward. And that's what this laid there for us. Um, and, and the pandemic, certainly, you know, we know that Black Canadians are, are um, more affected than, than uh, white folks right now. I know because I've been reading and following in the papers that you've been um, one of the organizations leading an effort to just get food to people um, who need it in the pandemic. Can you give us a quick uh, peek into that reality of the work, the emergency work that you've been doing? Because I think you, sure. we can see that you connect it to the systemic uh, analysis and solutions. Yeah, so we, we, we never imagined that we'd be giving out uh, free food. It's not a part of our model. Uh, there are other groups that do that. Um, but we realized that a lot of those organizations that required people to come to them, whether it's food banks, that sort of thing, uh, food pantries, were having challenges, obviously, uh, uh, welcoming folks. So we said, we've got a model where we're able to distribute boxes of fresh produce to folks. So we started raising money. But I think the most important thing that we did was partner with organizations that work with communities uh, that are that we know are the most vulnerable and were before uh, COVID-19. So working with groups like the Workers Action Center, working with um, Black Lives Matter, working with in, an indigenous queer group. So 80, 80 groups across the city who we just said, there's no application. We want to, you tell us who to send this fresh produce to, and we will deliver it to their homes, you know, and that's been really important. And I think an opportunity for us to build some key relationships as this work moves forward. Because as you've, as you've said, you know, um, this is one element of the work, the emergency piece, but there, this is exposed uh, systems that are in desperate need of change. So we look forward to working with these groups to, to do that as well, to advance that work as well. Don, I, I feel like you wanna jump in. You started, you started uh, in our, our conversation, we're talking about the pandemic as a kind of message from mother nature. Um, do you want to talk in, in some of those terms about the crisis that pre-existed this pandemic? Yes, well, um, prior to the pandemic, we as Indigenous peoples, well, all throughout colonization have, have witnessed drastic changes to the health and well-being of the land, the water, the people, the plants and the animals that provide us with our food. The climate crisis um, we know we have stories, we have oral history, we have um, um, memories within the elders who are still alive, who have seen the changes within their lifetime, even myself, um, remembering swimming in the river or the lakes and feeling so pure and clean that you could see the bottom of a really deep lake and you, you just can't see that anymore. And, um, we know that as uh, hunters and fishers and gatherers um, in this part of the world and an estimated two-thirds of all Indigenous peoples in so-called North America um, are hunters and gatherers and hunters and gatherers are among 
the, the oldest living memory of what it means to live sustainably on this planet. Hunters and gatherers have been here for 90% of the time that humans have been here. And it's because of the model of economy in large part, um, the subsistence, the giving, the sharing, the trading, the cooperation. We know that during COVID there was global networks of mutual aid that popped up all over the place and people started planting gardens and you almost, you couldn't buy seeds in the store anymore because so many people realized, oh wow, we can't rely on the, the corporations anymore. And we, we have to plant a garden and we have to work together and we have to help each other and we have to provide help to those who don't have food. And um, so, so I think really looking at um, the model of economy and recognizing that the Western science, you know, is part of a solution, but it is not the ultimate voice of truth and reason. And the techno-bureaucratic framework for research and development that has been established through colonization in, in BC, in so-called BC, in this part of the world, where there's 27 nations of indigenous peoples who are still here. We've never surrendered or ceded the title to our land, our water. We still have memories within my lifetime, and I don't consider myself an elder yet, but I can see that we are still realizing our governance, and that hasn't died. Um, the knowledge is still there within our original instructions and our genetic blueprint. And so when we think of Western science asserting to be the ultimate voice of truth and reason for governing and policy proposals and planning, it totally falls short. We need a whole new, um, a transition, a just transition that includes social justice around dismantling structural uh, racism that's been instituted in every research and policy and planning and governance institute in this in this place and as well as education um, you know during COVID I heard you say people like class sizes were reduced to 12 to 15 and that's great but for indigenous peoples we we're unschooling our kids we we don't think that that colonial model of education is actually what we need we need our children to be spending time with the parents for the parents to be supported, to move away from a wage economy that forces us to spend less time teaching our children our languages, our culture, our hunting, our fishing, our gathering, our food preservation. Um, and we need to build communities of regenerative practice that support each other in a decolonizing and moving away from a capitalist uh, economy and wage economy. Um, we want to be together. We want to cooperate. We want to be in community. And we have so many social issues in our community. Food insecurity is only one of them. We've got high rates of um, poor mental health, high rates of stress and trauma associated with just my mother was forced into Indian, uh, Indian residential school from the age of five to 14 years old. A year later, she had me. I was born into a memory of trauma, of what it means to be enslaved as a child, what it means to be beaten because you speak your language. Um, and that's just one person in our community. And, 
And so we're on the front lines, but we're dealing with this and we're dealing with the high rate of drug addiction where people are so, um, so dismayed at this system and the way it separated us from our families and communities that they feel that attempt to fill the void with drugs and alcohol and it's rampant and epidemic food related illnesses, um, chronic inflammation, liver disease. These are all a part, very much a part of the food system. Um, so it's, um, yeah, I could go on and on, but I think Western science and its reductionist mindset will not, it's not designed to address a complex issue. We must look to indigenous and transition to a regenerative life-giving paradigm and a mindset that is based on a holistic health narrative and indigenous peoples know that we, we still remember that it's still encoded in us and uh, but we need a lot of support and we need to figure out how to even using these communication tools and having capacity for that is is a is something that you know um one way people can support but anyways i won't go into all of the solutions right now but i i just think that a transition a just transition to a regenerative tribal economy informed by indigenous paradigm i see a lot of work happening to transition to a regenerative food system but i think in a lot of cases the same as agroecology it misses the mark on the social justice and the indigenous the significant role we play Indigenous people make up only 5% of the world's population, yet we maintain 22% of the world's landmass and 80% of the world's biodiversity. In so-called Canada, we've been allocated through the colonial government only 0.2% of the whole landmass. How are we supposed to be food sovereign with that when we're placed on Indian reserves that are that? Really, the system of apartheid in South Africa was modeled after the reservation system in so-called Canada. So these are real glaringly blatant racist kind of system that we're attempting to, that I think there's huge opportunity to transition out of, but it really must be centering indigenous leadership and indigenous knowledge. Don't and that's not to discount the people of color because I know that people of color from all over the world were dispossessed from the same global forces. And, and I, uh, so I think capitalism and coloniality is a, a, an experience we share um, globally. So. Don, you're so, you're, you're so good at making the connections and the people in the, in the chat are cheering. Um, and I, I do want to point out that we have a very lively chat going on and an audience that at the very least stretches from the Gulf Coast uh, folks in New Orleans to to the far north uh, in Canada and well beyond and so I really appreciate the the, the connections and the holistic way uh, that you're approaching these subjects um, and Raj that's a lot of what what you do in your work but as we wrap up this round considering the crisis and how the pandemic um, exploded it I, I wonder if you could bring in a little bit of the perspective from your work on farming um, and around the world. Um, and some of the, I've, I've been uh, really changed by some of your writing 
on the way that financial systems and, and, and this current form of capitalism that we live under has shaped the experience and the, and the practice of, of farming. Um, and I'd love, I'd love it if you could shine a little light on the crises in the farming system, which Dawn, I think, has put in a holistic context um, versus uh, hunting and gathering and other conceptions of the food system. But the global food system is a thing. Um, and I think in the early days of the pandemic, when people um, started to think about whether, whether there would be food shortages in the supermarkets and the phrase supply chain entered the vernacular, people started you know, worrying about supply chains. For me, it was a teachable moment. Um, so teach us a little bit about what's going on in the food system crisis. I can maybe lob it in one idea uh, to, to help sort of pull this all together. It's the idea of debt. Debt is what it is that uh, you know, communities of people of, of color uh, in, in colonized countries uh, have figured out ways to, to navigate and negotiate and survive through the kinds of mutual aid that Paul was talking about. Uh, and the, 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 the systems of debt uh, that deeply impact farmers, uh, whether in the United States or in Canada or uh, uh, you know, in, in the global south, are remarkably similar because the corporations that administer them are remarkably similar. Uh, and if you're you know, interested in the, the sort of lock-in for the paradigm that we're in at the moment, debt is sort of front and center because as soon as uh, farmers on occupied land or on land that they farm for generations uh, start falling into debt, then the pressure is on to, to fall into the paradigm of industrial agriculture, uh, not because it is a better paradigm, but, but because it offers some pathway out of debt uh, without default and without losing the land on which, uh, you know, which your, your family has, has been attached for, for generations. Uh, and the, uh, it, it seems to me that this is the, one of the bonds that needs to be sundered in any future agricultural system is uh, the link between how uh, indebted farmers find themselves making horrific decisions for them and their families, uh, deploying the agrotoxins uh, and the industrial monocultures of uh, large-scale agriculture, even if they know that they themselves wouldn't eat any of this stuff in their worst nightmares, uh, but they must do it in order to satisfy the bank and to satisfy the debt that has been imposed by the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund, and to, uh, to make it possible uh, to perhaps save enough money to send a, a, you know, a, a child off to school. Um, these kinds of uh, excruciating short-term decisions in the hope of some sort of long-term better outcome uh, are the, the crushes that industrial agriculture forces, far, forces farmers into. So, uh, I mean, I, I think if we look across the world in this moment, uh, we see debt as the, you know, the, the master's tool. Uh, and whether that's the debt that's being wielded over small scale farmers in the global north or south uh, to be able to, you know, to shunting them into one form of production away from sustainability, or whether it's the kind of debt that's wielded by private equity firms and by uh, you know, the, the G20 countries bilaterally, uh, you see countries in the global south suffering and selling off their land, even if it's not their land, uh, which, you know, and again, thank you, Dawn, for bringing up again and again the fact that that land was never these states to give away, and nonetheless, they do it. Uh, th that uh, impulse to, to bring in, uh, you know, 
capital from China or from Wall Street or wherever it is in order to pay off the debt. That is driving industrial agriculture even deeper in this moment of COVID. And uh, I think if we are to, to be able to take the step back uh, away, you know, building on the, the traditions of mutual aid and mutual support that we're starting to, to build now, um, that debt has to end. It, you know, a dozen years ago, there was a, a global financial crisis where a lot of us learned for the first time that debt had been itself commodified, that the debts of mortgages had been packaged and sliced and diced and resold, um, and that there was a debt in a bubble, right? That, it, that people were making money off of other people's debts. And this, in the, in the intervening years, there's been a financialization of land and of farmland around the world. And Raj, if you can just speak a little bit to that, I think it's important to understand the crisis that you brought to really human terms about the choices that farm families need to make. But one of the big barriers is farms are getting bigger and bigger. You need a lot of money to buy land. Private equity vulture firms are buying up land <laughs> and speculating on it. And, and the whole thing is about profits rather than feeding people. I mean, so that's more my brutal reductionist uh, version of it. But can you fill in some of the blanks around how debt is playing out in, in, in how food gets produced? Well, I mean, j just very quickly, I mean, you, um, the, the excellent academic Madeleine Fairbairn has, has talked about land as like gold with yield. Uh, and land is now just another investment class. Uh, and it, it provides... Uh, the, the kinds of return that uh, you know, other assets may go up and down, uh, but land produces food and it, so you, you can buy and sell it, but it also provides that, that interest. Uh, and the, you know, the, the interest comes from uh, the transformation of farmer as someone who is connected to their land uh, into someone who is a, a debt peon. Uh, uh, so someone who exists to be able to uh, maintain their, you know, just a, a sort of fing fingernail hold on the land by uh, following the most lucrative uh, return path. Uh, and even if that return path is uh, mining the soil for its fertility and poisoning people downstream and, uh, you know, very carbon intensive and polluting the air, uh, it doesn't, you know, the, 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 what matters is being able to hang on by your fingernails. And so again, Debt becomes this mechanism through which uh, the, you know, the, the, the land is turned into an asset that generates its yield. But this is, I mean, I, I, this is why I'm so concerned with the idea of what comes next, because uh, if we're interested in you know, a sort of decolonizing approach to this debt, then it can't merely be a, a sort of land to the tiller moment if we are to take Dawn's call for the rematriation of land seriously. If, if land is to be rematriated, if we are to have uh, a transformative relationship to uh, the indigenous communities that still live and thrive uh, on, uh, in and around this alienated land, then what's the relationship between, for example, sustainable farmers and uh, indigenous communities? I mean, I think if we're interested in, in the, you know, if, let's imagine the debt goes away. What comes next after that? Hi, this is Liz Stringer, and you're listening to the Mighty 3CR on 855 AM and digital radio, 3cr.org.au.
Welcome to Over the Wall, and we're going to talk about RoboDebt. 2016, the federal government launched the OCI, the Online Compliance Intervention Scheme, which is an automated debt calculation system. It was a policy which we've all heard of being called RoboDebts that was designed to recover claimed overpayments to welfare recipients, as the government stated. Since then, hundreds of thousands of Australians have received debt recovery notices from Centrelink, as we've reported in past editions of Over the Wall, and many people do not know their rights of response when their robo-debt letter arrives or they were being contacted by debt collectors and harassed. Recent media reports by family members have been a clear and very sad testimony to the fact that the stress and anxiety due to robo-debt harassment has caused people to get unwell to the point of considering serious self-harm. Robo-debts penalise in high proportions people already disadvantaged by poverty and significant health conditions. The harassment by private debt collectors has increased harm to many people who also experience significant mental health stress as a result of the robo-debts. Early in 2020, robo-debt was proven to be an illegal procedure in the courts, an illegal procedure being used by federal governments. Robo-debt was a neoliberal policy seeking to benefit the financial growth of government coffers with insufficient concern for the social impact and harms caused to the most vulnerable members of society on low incomes. Personally, I've been a recipient of a disability support pension in the past since my diagnosis with HIV in the 80s, and over decades I've witnessed personalised communication with Centrelink, decrease in standards, including a huge increase in call waiting times and queues at Centrelink offices in the recent decade. It's also become hard to ascertain when calling Centrelink whether I am actually speaking to an actual Centrelink employee or a call centre operator from a private company subcontracted by the government to administer Centrelink services. Some of these privately contracted operators for Centrelink call centres are also the same companies, for example, Serco, who are hired by the government to service our horrid immigration detention centres. My personal experience with Centrelink was receiving a robo-debt in 2016 as a result of my returning to work casually, and then at the end of the 2015-16 tax year, Centrelink applied automated algorithm that averages earnings and calculates an overpayment, as they did for myself that year, and they gave me a debt notice and the calls from debt collectors began. They pressured me to enter into a payment plan straight away, or I could face penalties was the wording that was used. The robo-debt notice was very brief, the one I got in the mail, just one page with just a few lines and a, and a fee on it, an amount that I'd been overpaid, and it said though, due to falsely reporting income and that failure to comply would result in my being contacted by a private debt recovery service, which I already had been anyway. I was not informed in this initial notice of my right to appeal, nor was I aware that once I had accepted the debt, out of a feeling of fear, as many people do, that I still had a right further down the track to appeal the debt at any stage. I felt intimidated by coming up against the government department 
without knowing my rights of appeal. But thanks to campaigns such as Not My Debt, who we've spoken to in the past and over the wall, I learnt my rights after receiving a robo-debt notice. And please, listeners, visit Not My Debt, their campaign site, and you will get all the support and information you need, as well as a forum for people sharing their experiences and peer-supporting one another in this experience. My personal experience has taught me the best means of support. Some of the practical information includes collecting reference numbers for any interactions with Centrelink you ever have, taking screenshots of all correspondences. One other huge issue which we've covered in the past and we will be covering in the future is the issues affecting people with disability and there's been a Disability Royal Commission. I mentioned earlier in the program I returned to casual work and casual work was initially for me as a disability support worker which I've done for a number of years inside the sector and very unfortunately I've witnessed experiences there which aren't atypical experiences that have been discussed and reported through the Disability Royal Commission and I'm going to finish with a true story based upon being a whistleblower in my workplace. Disability Communal House 2016. He wanted to walk once a day to their front gate and collect the home's mail and walk back again. He walked inside the house just fine with a cane It was not an occupational therapist that deemed him to be a fall risk. It was management who told staff to prevent him from walking to the front gate. I don't know how he felt about it. He didn't speak. He walked fine whenever he was on group outings. Experienced staff told me to forget their care plan. Spoke of insufficient time for two staff to attend to the gentle humming woman with a damaged spine, nor a man with epilepsy in the room across the hall. The experienced staff said, we've only got two hours to dress them, toilet, bathe them, feed them, and medication. Them was spoken in front of them who had names. We were trained to door knock whenever we entered a room. That day, I assisted solo a man who experienced what's called constant micro-seizures and regular tonic-clonic seizures, major seizures. These ones needed to be timed carefully. I remember that day seeing the whites of his eyes, yelling for assistance when I couldn't prevent him from falling. I used my body as a wedge between him and the falling. He had cut badly his tongue and there was blood on the bed, and he was very unwell after the seizure. After the ambulance left and he went to the hospital and spent there four days, staff, the experienced staff, said to the house manager, two staff had attended to him. A week later, I built up the courage to speak to management. She was a new manager and seemed sensitive and strong. She managed three group houses and she was trying to understand as she listened to me. When I started that job, staff, the experienced staff, suspected I might be a plant sent from head office to observe malpractice. Listeners, paranoia and shortcuts 
looped in every workplace that was understaffed. I told the manager the truth. And then, about a month later, I quit when the experienced staff really spoke to me. You've been listening to Over the Wall, and we'll be back next week with some live interviews. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. East Gippsland Dispatch. Voices and stories of community and resilience from East Gippsland. Hello, you're listening to another Dispatch from East Gippsland. My name's Fiona. Jack Wadcote has lived in East Gippsland all his life and is a valued member of the Float Collective. Jack, a long-time environmentalist, speaks about the importance of ecotourism in bringing people to East Gippsland to enjoy the pristine Gippsland lakes and forests and the critical importance of the East Gippsland Shire's responsibility in protecting it now. Elections are happening in October, so now is the time to check out what your councillors stand for. I'm talking to Jack Wadcote and we're identifying that nationally and locally there's a real crisis of leadership want to ask you, Jack, how do you experience that here in, in East Gippsland, in the East Gippsland Shire? In, in lots of cases where environmental issues, and that's what I'm interested in, where they're being debated in council and people want something protected, there seems to be a difficulty in getting the message across that it is vitally important for East Gippsland to have an environment which is as pristine as we can get it through council. The councillors, some of them are keen to have it done, but when it goes before a council meeting, there seems to be almost a cartel of councillors who reject environmental considerations. Is there a long-term plan? You mentioned about the the conflict with the developers who really want to have big end-of-town developments is in business as usual style of attracting the tourists who are the mm. higher end tourists who are going to bring the money into the town. So there seems to be a conflict between that and ecotourism or nature related tourism. Has the East Gippsland Shire got a long term plan and how does this issue that you're referring to fit into that? Certainly certainly while there is opportunity for development within the properties and the township itself, it seems to be that it's got to be a big glorious thing before it gets off the ground to council. 
and, and instead of before they get before they give it approval. Yeah, it it seems to be aimed at big big developments rather than small incremental developments which look after the environment. That's where it seems to to get the block. Whether it's from individual councillors who, who are benefiting from those developments or whether they are taking the easy path for themselves, I don't know. But when you go to a council meeting or read the papers as to what's happening through council minutes, then there seems to be that attitude of, you know, we can bring those plans in at a later date and by the time you've got those plans in to protect something, it's too late, it's gone because all around it is is hemming it in. Can you give me some examples of your experience with the councillors to make you think, to make you describe them as them and us, your sense of Um, how you came to that realisation? personal side of it, I think, is is where this Glenaladale development with Calba Industries want to put the sand mining on Calba, or Calba want to put it in. The protests that were held there were genuine. In my view, they were genuine. And when it came to debate the issues and the public were allowed to go in and and speak for their time, usually five minutes at a time to be to the councillors themselves, all of a sudden the mayor got up and said you can only have three minutes instead of five. Now people who went there had already arranged their speeches and their their presentations to take five minutes. But at the last minute when they stood up, they were told you can only have three minutes. Now that sort of thing is, is it's counterproductive to give to good government of it when the rules are changed just at the last minute. And that, that was evident that that, and, and the public were dumbfounded, they were just completely dumbfounded. Um, people couldn't present their, their case properly. And, and that was, it was put to the council itself as to whether that should be allowed or not. And, and there was four councillors or five councillors who said, yeah, that's the mayor's prerogative. And those other councillors who, who said, no, it's not right, were just outvoted. And that, that's one example where I say that there is almost a cartel of councillors who are pro-development at any cost. That's all I can say. Is there a, is there a process where the East Gippsland Shire creates a, a, a long-term plan, like the state government's got 2020 or the, you know, the planning, that, planning Victoria yeah, has got yeah. you know, 2030 the plan? Does East Gippsland Shire have that? Well, every town has gone through a process of, of a, a planning process which gives the five to ten year forward planning. Each town was given that opportunity about, about eight or ten years ago now and some bits away. They were given that process but I don't think that, that document which was presented and developed is ever looked at. I think it's, oh we've done that so we can just go ahead and we've carried out our obligations under the, under the state government's direction to have this town plan developed. That's in the drawer there somewhere or other. We'll just go along our own every way. It doesn't seem to be following a set plan that the people wanted. It's following the set plan that they, those few councillors who have the ear of the CEO, and he seemed to be the one that had the last say. When you, when you go to a council meeting, he's sitting there advising what can and can't be done. Now, whether that's coming from the state government through that CEO, or not, I can't say, but it's possible. Is the East Gippsland Shire, and the same thing would apply to other shires, is yeah. the East Gippsland Shire following state government regulations? You've talked about your perception of the council. What, yeah. what do you think that the council's perception of itself is? I think they try to do the right thing, but they're being hoodwinked into following a line which is, in the end, coming under the state government's direction. 
they think they're you know, going by the letter of the law, but it, but there is a direction comes down from the CEO who says who was able to steer the debates, steer the policies that are put forward to the people in a way which follows the state government's direction. And the state government are looking for the development of any cost. Yeah, so it's really it's growth, growth, yeah. growth and jobs, yeah, isn't it? That's right. Growth and jobs. Yeah. We need jobs. We need, we can provide jobs that enhance the ability of the environment to bring people here to enjoy life in a natural world. Yeah. That's what we're looking for. How have you been working within the existing like, structure? Yeah. Talking to people like, wherever I get the opportunity to, to say something about the environment, then I, I try and, and push my point of view that the environment is basically important for all mankind, not just for me. But for our kids that are coming on, they don't have an, an environment which is compatible to healthy living, then what's the point? point in developing if you're going to kill the kids off in, in lots of polluted ways. What, what could, at the other end of the spectrum, of, of people who do care about the environment, of people who are really concerned with providing a future for our children and grandchildren, what can you see is happening? Because it's not that nothing's happening, no, is it? No. no. Well, I think there is a groundswell, and, and float is one uh, thing that I can identify with fairly closely by going to the meetings and, and listening to what's going around at the meetings. There is a, a groundswell of people who are realised that the environment is is under pressure from development, which is not good for the environment. And I think that groundswell is gradually growing in a way which the government are going to have to listen to, otherwise they're peril. How? By voting. You, we, you know, if, if, if people are not doing the right thing by what your beliefs are, then you have the opportunity to try and develop a way of outvoting them. You talked about the, your opinion about the possible cartel of councillors. How do you think that's going to shift to get councillors who actually are aware that we're really in a, a dangerous situation here and we have to work with the environment, not exploit we it. We have to get councillors in there who are sympathetic to protecting the environment and not only protecting but promoting the environment as a very important part of the world, including East Gippsland. Without that keenness of a, of a councillor to, to want to do something about them, then you haven't got a hope. But gradually there is a, that groundswell I was talking about is, is getting people talking about it so much that it becomes popular. Once it's popular, then you've got the opportunity to get into council with, with people who have the opportunity and the ability to talk about it and debate about it in a way which gives it protection. By, the, by then, you've got some opportunity about voting those few who have only their, their own pockets and, and their daily wealth involved. This has been another interview by Catherine Van Wilgenberg, a float artist in residence, just after the bushfires in January when she caught up, caught up with the renowned environmentalist Jack Wadcote. Jack and Grace Wadcote will feature, along with Gary Plumley, Ray Thomas, Cheryl Jacoby, Sue Fraser, who sadly died last week, and Wayne Burnett, in a forthcoming exhibition at the Slipway Lakes Entrance, when it's possible to open this exciting new venue for art, food and environmental protection.
As one of the numerous true blue Aussies of Irish descent, I've always loved the lilt of the Irish accent. Well, you probably don't have to be Irish um, of Irish descent to appreciate it, but my enjoyment has been blunted. Because every time I hear the airline that used to be our airline, Big Supremo Alan Joystick, spouting off, I can't stand the accent. As we know, he's demanding government assist his shareholders and him bail out the airline privatised to enjoy the efficiency of the private sector and always while crushing and or sadly having to let go more and more of the workforce. This week, Alan said he had no choice but to outsource 2,500 jobs, including baggage handlers and aircraft cleaners, obviously inspired by the outstanding success, the private sector competence of the government outsourcing its quarantine hotel responsibilities. That is 2,500 workers being sadly let go on top of the 6,000 previously announced. So that should be the end of dirty aircraft and lost baggage, our luggage landing on the other side of the world to where we just landed. The nuclear hawk himself, world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul Government, privatised our airline because the private sector was more efficient and had huge advantages over the inefficient, bloated hand of the public sector. Yet, time and again, that grating Irish accent pleads for more government handouts because state-owned airlines have a huge advantage over the private sector, he tells us. I get very confused and realise how little I know about the greatest little economic order of them all. Remember just a few months ago when the Lord Rupert of Wapping's sense of decency was abraded by branch stacking and abuse of parliamentary office in the state Socialist Party, page after page, screaming headlines day after day? Well, obviously, Lord Rupert's editorial staff decided its readers had had enough of that sort of sensationalism, as this week identical carry-on in the Caring Business Class Party, fingering Deputy Finance Minister Michael suck up to capital, and that pious follower of the dear baby Jesus, Kevin Ann screws the workers, half a single column bottom of P2, left-hand page, and short follow-up reports also on left-hand pages, the Berry story pages. But then they did have the big bad story to splash page after page, sensation, sensation, the villain, a different Andrews, the pejorative Dan, yet again. Premiers grab for absolute power, screaming from P1. Uh, yes, we asked the Lord Rupert team. Uh, there's been a couple of cases of COVID-19 in Queensland. Where would they have come from? Daniel Andrews. Uh, but they also control the uh, can't control the mass deaths and illnesses in the U.S. of the U.S. of the U.S. of the world, for instance. Thanks to Daniel Andrews. Daniel Andrews has failed the U.S. of people. Daniel Andrews has failed the people of the world. That'll teach Victorians for ignoring Lord Rupert's wise advice and twice electing the pejorative Dan and the socialist lot. Lord Rupert ordered them not to elect. In fairness, there were clear differences between the Socialist Party branch stacking and misuse of public funds and the Caring Business Class Party branch stacking and misuse of public funds, outlined by Big Supremo Scuttle them, who back then told Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Anthony all being oozy, the Victorian scandal was his responsibility. You are the party leader. 
while he explained this week it was a state matter and absolutely nothing to do with him, like privatised aged care disasters which are his responsibility but are not his responsibility and nothing to do with him, but everything to do with, yes, the pejorative Dan. He's, that's the pejorative, even forced subtle them and the team to legislate that the pejorative Dan's Belt and Road deal with evil China is against our national interest. Not that the legislation is aimed at evil China, of course, and the fact that the government supported the deal when it was signed shows how the pejorative D fooled them. Indeed, he's so evil, he's forced a committed supporter of the greatest little economic order, an ardent opponent of evil socialism, to urge Victorian businesses to become, wait for it, socialists. Good, good socialists in this case. Yes, Sarah hindered the socialist son. Remember Sarah lost her Karangamite seat in the last election, so they bumped her into the Senate by bumping some senator whose name we've forgotten into some sinecure diplomatic role. Anyway, Sarah has urged Victorian businesses to sue the pejorative Dan government for losses during the lockdown. That should do the state coppers the world of good. Because the caring business class and the caring business class party tell us we can't afford a lockdown. We must learn to live with the virus because the economy can't afford not to live with it. Uh, So for people living with it, that must also mean dying with it. Look, that's an emotional and therefore a rational response. To state the obvious, People are mortal. They're going to die anyway. While the economy is immortal, it cannot die. Oh, like God. Same thing. To ensure the immortality of the greatest little economic order, therefore ignoring that Karl Marx chap's quote, all that is solid turns into air, ensure the immortality, the very mortal public sector must offer a little bit of help over and above paying the caring employer's wages bill, bit of help and in the circumstances, in the urgency of preserving the immortal, the the very mortality of the environment, for instance, must be put aside temporarily. And sure, we all care about the environment, but this is an emergency. We can care about the environment later on, or what's left of the environment later on, when we can afford to waste time on social luxuries like preserving mortal life on Earth. Example, scuttle them announcing a $1 billion handout to the merchants of death industry for ships, vehicles and lots more train killer facilities, including a couple of hundred million on train killer infrastructure around Darwin, which will please our very, very, very close friend, the US of, whose marines stationed in Darwin for our security can benefit from our public purse largesse. An example, $3.3 million to a fossil fossil company to conduct a feasibility study into a brand new state-of-the-art coal-fired power station in North Queensland at Collinsville under the urgings of the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party rump. But just in case we're thinking, I'm not sure the planet needs another coal-fired power station just now, rest assured. The Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, insists it will be a low-emissions coal-fired power station. Perhaps they can go a step further and practice sequestration, the burying your head in the sand solution for good measure, as the community measures the not-so-good. 
The recently deceased union environmentalist Jack Mundy argued workers should have a say in the work they do and should insist on performing, quote, socially useful work. But obviously the government couldn't think of anything more socially useful to kickstart the economy, their term, and create jobs, their great and sincere concern, with a few billion of those workers' taxes than the merchants of death and the profiteers from the death of the planet. So, well, finally, I'm sure we can't think of any essential non-lethal public services listener and responsibilities that could do with a bit of a top-up. Good morning. A determined community campaign over five years won the ban on fracking and a moratorium on onshore gas drilling for Victoria. It was a great victory for grassroots people power, but now the Victorian government has decided to lift the moratorium on onshore drilling, even though its own report admits it won't bring down gas prices. Even worse, they want to open up the west coast of the state to offshore gas drilling. It's essential we stand up now and make it clear that the time for new fossil fuels is over. Join the campaign by checking the Friends of the Earth website at www.melbournefo.org.au slash gas. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, some politics with your weekies. It is clear that Australia, America's deputy sheriff, is doing all the things a good little toady needs to do to please its master when it comes to China, with angst expressed about the Chinese manoeuvres in the South China Sea and Chinese asset buying in Australia and research dollars in Australian universities. The fact that Lockheed Martin underwrites Melbourne University research with only the students and activists complaining means the Chinese are clearly wearing the black hats and the US the white hats. The problem for Australia is that we are tied to the teat of the Chinese economy. Caught between a rock and a hard place, Professor Jane Golly from the Canberra-based institute looking into China's place in the world was chatting with the Australia Institute's Alan Bean about the conundrums recently, so I thought you might like to hear a few excerpts to chew over. In a nutshell, I think the big issue is that whereas for the last 25 years, for the whole time that I've been engaged in understanding China, we viewed it as an opportunity, uh, particularly for the economists. We were right at front and centre of the celebrations of kind of the trading links and the investment and the prosperity that we shared with China as they rose rapidly and dramatically from being a very, very poor country to being still just a developing country, but on the verge of becoming a a high-income country. Uh, I think what we've seen in the last four or five years is a real shift in how the Australian government and I think many of the people as well think about our national interests. Uh, And so you might just simply think of national interest as a function of security and prosperity. And while China was rising, we focused entirely on the prosperity side of the story or largely, but now the security elements have become increasingly prominent and I would say have come to dominate uh, the national debate and particularly the the debate here in Canberra. 
if we start at the top with the political relationship, there's no doubt the deterioration has been rapid. I'd say since 2016, but particularly since late 2017, when Xi Jinping stood up and said that he was essentially going to rule China for life if he wanted to. He wrote that into the constitution and that was a real wake up call for everyone. And I think a lot of fear came with that, essentially a realization that China wasn't gonna become like us. People had been, I think, wishfully thinking or hoping that China would follow a trajectory that led eventually towards a liberal market-based modern democracy. Now there are lots of valid reasons for why that fear has risen. I think, you know, the way China has journeyed under Xi Jinping is upsetting for me. I mean, there are lots of things that it's done that are really troubling. What's happening in Xinjiang, in Hong Kong, closer to home for me on academic freedoms and on the freedoms of people more broadly, you know, that's been very worrying. Uh, And that has resulted in growing distrust uh, from the Australian side. But that mistrust has also been really compounded by the narrative that's unfolded under under Trump and the Trump administration. I mean, the US is increasingly and almost consistently talking about China as an evil and malign communist state. The communist term is there in every, you know, aspect of the way they now talk about it. Uh, And so there's a really complex element there too. I think both sides of the equator, Beijing and Canberra, are both given to rather too much hyperventilation at the moment. there's a lot of sort of shouting and and rather sort of strident remarks coming from uh, the Australian side. And equally, China is giving as good as it gets. None of that gets us anywhere. Uh, Maybe a few politicians feel the better for having blown off steam. But if you ask anybody in the Australian financial or commercial or trading sector what they think about the current situation, they will tell you that we've created an environment making it so, so much more difficult for business to do what it's good at, which is doing business, and for them to contribute to growing our economy, which will remain quite dependent on China, whether we like it or not. And I think that requires a lot more measure and discipline, certainly on our part, but also on the part of the government in Beijing. The biggest issue that's come out really in the re- in recent years are concerns about China's interference in our political and policy processes, and more recently about their capacity to coerce or punish us when we don't do what they like. But I think what the government, our government wants more than anything is to preserve the economic relationship while still being able to talk a little bit tough on China when they're doing things that we don't like and also prevent them from doing those things that make our lives more difficult. Uh, But I want to be a little bit more provocative, actually, uh, and suggest that, you know, the Australian government and I think the Australian people more broadly were far more comfortable when China was rising uh, and we were just benefiting from their economics and we weren't having to experience what comes with rising wealth. And what comes with rising wealth is power. And power is essentially synonymous with influence. So influence is a natural consequence of that rising power and they've reached a point where they can practice it. The American government, through their 
wealth and power influence all sorts of things that happen across the world and we're fine with that but we're not comfortable with it in the in the chinese context and that partly comes back to the question or the uh, the fact that they're different from us and we struggle with that although they're not as different i think as many people are led to believe we're all human beings after all uh, but you know there is this um sense that i get that we'd be really much more comfortable if, if China sat and agreed to sit under the United States in the global hierarchy. And the problem is that they're not going to do that. It's only a couple of years ago that um, Prime Minister Abbott was asked uh, by Angela Merkel, um, you know, how does Australia regard China? And um, his response was uh, as forthright as, it, as I think it was naive, uh, and that is with fear and greed. And I think that uh, Australian governments have wanted China to be something other than it actually is. Uh, they want China to expand economically, as Jane said, but not to grow the power and the influence that comes with economic strength. And I think that what the government in Australia wants is for a China which is simply going to go along with what we like to call the international rules-based order as it was set up in the immediate post-Second World War years, and simply accept all of that with the overall leadership of the United States. And that clearly is not what China, or Russia for that matter, wants to accept at all. Uh, I, I'm certain that what China is looking for is a measure of parity with the United States over the longer term, and to be able to exercise leadership and a, and a measure of power dominance in what it would regard as being its sphere of influence, which is Asia. And that is the point that we have to understand and then manage our own affairs in a way that China's rise to dominance does not actually undermine our own prosperity, our own security and our own ability to carve our way through a pretty tricky world. And uh, I don't think any Australian government can do that when its policies are based either on misconception or based, more worryingly, on confected fear. More broadly, the Australian economic growth story of the last 30 years has a hell of a lot to do with China. And so prosperity is the opening point on what we have in common. But we also have regional security in common. They don't want war in the region. They don't want in instability there might be a question that follows quickly from, you know, about what they've done in the South China Seas, for example. But if you look at that from the Chinese perspective, they see that as preserving sea lanes so that they can continue to trade and invest with the rest of the world. Uh, it, the environment, it is one area where there is such a golden opportunity with China. And again, people might look at China, they see the large population, they see all of the pollution and think, what an awful job they've done. But this is a developing country that has industrialised rapidly and that they've really done some remarkable things in reducing their reliance on coal, in boosting their renewable energy sector. There is so much opportunity that we could share in that links back to my notion, you know, the broader notion of Australian security. It's where prosperity and security, environmental security, go hand in hand. I mean, I'd also like to look at the Pacific as another example. You know, infrastructure building, there is such a high demand for it across this region. And by developing infrastructure, both Australia and China stand to benefit. And it's a clear example of where we could 
cooperate, we're instead at this point in time, we're really choosing to compete. And unfortunately, I don't think that's a competition that Australia is going to win. Basically focused on notions of, of industry agglomerating, concentrating in certain provinces or parts of the country or parts of the world, the eastern coast of China. And then the by engaging government in investing in infrastructure and reducing transport links, what we've seen is the spread of industry that that facilitates. And that, to me, is a big part of the Belt and Road Initiative. I, I totally accept that there are more, there are bigger strategic uh, kind of objectives that they have, but I saw it from the beginning as an economist would, and it made sense to me. You develop railways and roads and you create new markets that are then opened up to bring prosperity to both the Chinese people and those distant markets. Uh, and you see that in the Pacific. You know, I think there's a really big set of questions around that. If we both, China and Australia, genuinely care about development in the Pacific and not building our own influence there, we would work together to create opportunities for I'm going to use the word again, environmentally sustainable infrastructure development. That's what the Pacific Islanders want. Uh, and we could both deliver that to them much better by working together than by working apart. And then on my last point on that is about values. And we hear so often the discussion about how we have these Australian values. I, I do cringe a little when I hear that one of them is equality because, I mean, it's a, it's a value that I certainly have and I hope many of the listeners have. We don't all feel that way, but I don't think it's a value that belongs to Australia. That is a global value that I would hope we'd all aspire to. Uh, neither China nor Australia is kicking it out of the park on that front. Uh, there are things we could learn from each other. It's, you know, a lifelong interest of mine in inequality and in thinking about the ways that the Chinese government has done it well and also done it badly. So, so many things that we could cooperate on if we can find our way back there or there. And we're, yeah. not, we're doing it in some instances. Um, Alan, you and I have spoken about, for example, global warming as being one area where we have um, shared interests, but also our scientific links. What are some of those other things that would make up, you know, a, a comprehensive strategic partnership? You know, if you have a govern, government narrative and a United States government narrative that is increasingly negative, and then you also have a press that is predominantly a Murdoch press driving a very pro-US line and, and pointing out all of the bad things that China's doing, and there's plenty of that that they can point out, leave the rest of it out, and not surprisingly, the um, public's trust in China falls. And the numbers are pretty striking. You know, 23% of adult Australians trust China a great deal or somewhat to act responsibly in the world. Surprisingly, that's very close to the number of people uh, who think that Trump's going to behave responsibly in the world. I mean, again, I don't know if those are the two same 30% of people and how they assess their trust. But if I have to pick between those two leaders at the moment, I would actually side with Xi Jinping in terms of doing acting responsibly in global affairs, not in terms of how he's treating the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, um, but in terms of responsibly addressing the global pandemic. You know, the, some hiccups at the beginning, but they've come in hard. They've got the economy started up better than other you know, anywhere else in the world, really. And they just haven't done quite as bad a job as is portrayed in the press. But the point is still that trust has fallen in both the superpowers. 
Uh, and I want to take those hand in hand and really start talking more about but what they're both getting wrong, but also perhaps we could be thinking more about what they both could be getting right and the role that Australia could play uh, in steering them in that direction. Now, I don't want to oversell our capacity as a, as a great power. We're not a middle power, perhaps. Uh, and we, we, we like to think we punch above our weight here. Well, now might be the time to start working on how we can do anything. And I'm, you know, I am channeling Hugh, Hugh White here and his famous China choice book uh, where, you know, the key point was that we shouldn't have to choose uh, and that we should find a way to navigate uh, in between those two superpowers, especially when both of their leaders are behaving badly. I think there's still some scope for that. Uh, and that's where I'd love to see Australian government policy head. Nine in 10 Australians, 94%, want our government to reduce our economic dependence on China. And another 82% said that we should sanction Chinese officials um, associated with human rights abuses. Our dependency on China, likely to be the fastest growing economy of all our major trading partners this year, still the forecasts have dropped. They're down at 1%, but that's compared with minus 10% for Europe and, and the US that actually our dependence could be a real positive. On sanctions, really complex literature on whether they work, on what they're trying to achieve, uh, on whether there would be alternative ways to achieve change in Chinese government policy. I mean, that's what a sanction is. It's a coercive measure. It's a, a form of influence in someone else's domestic territory, exactly what we don't want them to be doing. And also one that I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect is very unlikely to work. And not only will it not work, but it will come at a cost to us. And you can speak to the barley farmers to understand what kind of cost that might be. It'll be in terms of jobs and growth. So the issue around human rights is a perennial one. And there is no doubt that China's activity towards uh, its Uyghur population is appalling. The question, though, is what can a country like Australia actually do about that? Where do we have any influence? And it would appear to me that our influence doesn't come from a quick grab at the megaphone and then shouting out, you're doing the wrong thing. It comes rather from being able to argue why respect for human rights domestically and internationally actually works to your advantage. In other words, you have a more stable and a more prosperous and a more secure society to the extent that you are able to accommodate the rights of all of your citizens. And if we think that that's just a problem for China dealing with its Uyghurs and perhaps dealing with Hong Kong, we should actually reflect a little bit on ourselves. We had the, the recognition of country when we began uh, this, this webinar this morning. But the fact is our own record in Australia in ensuring that the rights of Indigenous Australians are fully uh, recognised and honoured and valued is not that good. And so we've got a bit of work to do ourselves, not in terms of a binary between rights and the economy, but rather a good, solid nation like Australia able to move its way in the world is going to be one which is inclusive, uh, a country which respects each other, uh, and a country which is confident of its ability to put the argument 
as to why you should have certain codes of behaviour rather than simply calling out those who don't. Look, on interference, I think there definitely is cause for concern. Uh, it's been most visible in the university sector where I've spent my working life. Uh, as an academic, nothing matters more really than academic freedom. We need to be able to speak freely, you know, based on evidence, based on learning, um, based on knowledge gathering about how we see the world. And as soon as either we're not allowed to do that or our Chinese colleagues are running into problems with doing that, then we've definitely got a problem. I mean, the bright side of that is that both the Australian government and the universities moved very quickly uh, last year with the establishment of the foreign interference task force in the university sector. We came out um, before that, in fact, at the ANU with a very clear statement on academic freedom. Uh, it's something if I stand up in a classroom, I'll mention every time that I wanna have debates with people. I want to challenge their views. I want them to change my views and we can only do that uh, if we have the right to speak. And I've had some personal experiences um, both directly at me and also with Chinese colleagues that indicate that the Chinese government is trying to clamp down on that. And that is something that is deeply worrying for me. Uh, there are other kinds of interference that I think are overblown. You know, this notion that anyone who's been photographed with a Chinese party official in the last 10 years is somehow connected to the United Front and doing Beijing's bidding. Uh, I think I could raise the example of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology in Sydney, now headed by Professor James Lawrenson and former, formerly, of course, Bob Carr. Really unfair and untrue accusations that they were somehow funded. I mean, there was some Chinese funding that came in at a time when we were all receiving universities, the, the funding's been flying in. They have continued to provide evidence-based and objective analysis, but are accused of being aligned uh, and not only just aligned, but paid by and somehow doing Beijing's bidding. And th those narratives have genuinely been taken too far and need to be wound back. This comes back to one of my opening points about what constitutes a China problem and what constitutes an opportunity and how that narrative has changed, but also how different people see it very differently. And this idea that China owns too much of our agricultural land, first of all, to put the numbers right out there, in 2018, uh, they owned approximately, and this is Chinese investors broadly, not the Chinese Communist Party, but a range of different investors, some of them state-owned, owned 2.4% of Australia's total agricultural land, which put them on an even keel with the United Kingdom, the top two foreign investors. So just 2.4%, just, just I would say. Some might say that's too much. Um, but of that 2.4% of China's land, actually 91% of it is leasehold. It's not owned by the Chinese in, in any way that you carve them up. So it's a very small percentage, but I think the more important point that I always come back to on Chinese investment is if the Chinese weren't buying up that agricultural land and someone here in Australia wants to sell their land, then they're waiting and presumably want to sell it to the highest bidder. If you block the, the Chinese out of that, you sell it presumably to a lower price because Australians are now and have always been net dissavers. We have a capital shortage that's existed since the country began and we've always relied on foreign investment to come in and prop that capital up. Now, if you don't let it in, the very obvious consequence of that is one, a lower sale price, so the, the individual farm seller is worse off, but also less capital wherever it comes from. And I'm not nationalistic about my capital. I'm not nationalistic about trade. It's another, it's a 
contentious issue, but I, I believe in buying the, the, pro, the good that I want to buy, possibly at the best price. I take into, fa into consideration other things as well. But on land and on foreign investment more broadly, if you don't get it from China at this point, you don't get it at all because there's no one else ready to invest. So if we're all prepared to start saving more uh, and to pour that into our capital investments rather than buying flat screen TVs, for example, or building bigger houses, uh, then we could push China out of the market somehow. But that would come at a cost and the cost comes back to jobs and growth, things that actually matter uh, to the people out in the, in the country, but they matter to me as well. I don't want unemployment. I don't want our economy to stagnate. And it's for that reason that I support Chinese investments subject to the screening that our government takes and should take to ensure that it satisfies our security concerns. We've always got to look at the relationship between appearance and reality, I think. Uh, the government is going to land on 2% of GDP as the size of the defence budget. Um, and in order to do that, it's going to purchase some uh, new sorts of missiles. It's going to uh, recruit uh, 800 more people for the Australian Defence Force. Um, I think that that probably is the winning edge, really, 800. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, it's going to uh, um, sort of do a few other things, but the size of the announcement is actually not all that huge. It's really the intention that lies behind the announcement at this time that is more interesting, I think, um, because coming as it does after the, the Prime Minister's announcements on cyber security and cyber interference and so on, it really does look as though we want to muscle up to China. Um, to do as um, uh, a professor at the ANU uh, said uh, maybe 10 years or so ago now that we've got to be able to, quote, unquote, rip an arm off China. Uh, this, I think, uh, represents a kind of um, hubris which would be very expensive if ever it were tested. Um, it seems to me that no matter how much effort you put into bulking yourself up from being a featherweight to being a welterweight, you're still pretty crazy if you get into the ring with a heavyweight. This, I think this latest sign is just another signal that the balance has really shifted in favour of the securitisation of the relationship between Australia and China, but it also then is somewhat circular coming out of the United States and their new narrative that China is the enemy and we need to do everything we can to prepare for the conflict that, you know, is in some sort of circular way rising up. Uh, it then makes sense for our, for our government and for our media to talk about the problems with China. That then feeds into a public narrative that generates fear and reflects the fear that's being propagated throughout those various parts of the, of the um, issue. Uh, and then, lo and behold, what do we need? More defence spending so that we can tackle the problem when perhaps we might have been able to sit down and nut out a, a, a more peaceful way. This is Stephen Pigram from Up Broomway, Yauru Country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time.
Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. Apparently the end is near from strict lockdown, but the mask will be with us for a while. Until next week, keep safe. Uh, and we'll go out with a song from a listener, Graham, about the uh, Whitlam sacking, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. Remembrance Day 1975 A day some will never forget A day when democracy was under attack And Sir John gave Gough Whitlam the sack In the Senate supply bills were being knocked back The government lacked enough members Malcolm Fraser was plotting and the press on the attack Sir John gave Gough Whitlam the sack Well may we say, God save the Queen Cos nothing will save the Governor-General Well may we say, God save the Queen Because nothing will save the Governor-General Gough had a solution to put to Sir John To hold a half-Senate election But the instant when Gough turned his broad back Sir John gave Gough Whitlam the sack Gough stood on the steps of Parliament House The assembled crowd very angry And to Sir John Kerr Gough aimed his attack Told the crowd he'd been given the sack And he said, well may we say God save the Queen Because nothing will save the Governor-General Well may we say God save the Queen Because nothing will save the Governor-General Sir John had been plotting with our gracious Queen In hundreds of letters he'd set the scene It's hard to work out if Lizzie had his back When Sir John gave Gough Whitlam the sack Well may we say, God save the Queen Because nothing will save the Governor-General Well may we say, God save the Queen Because nothing will save the Governor-General Sir John's reputation was never the same He consoled himself in a bottle Moved to England to see out his days The public remained ever hostile Well may we say God save the Queen Because nothing will save the Governor-General Well may we say God save the Queen Because nothing will save the Governor-General Well may we say God save the Queen Because nothing will save the Governor-General You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.